We are not rejected. We are accepted. We are not orphaned. We are adopted. We are not unseen. We are known. We are not fearful. We are courageous. We are not deficient. We are satisfied. We are not condemned. We are forgiven. We are not uncertain. We are secure. We are not perfect. We are victorious. We are not in bondage. We are redeemed. We are not aimless. We are purposed. We are made in His image. And that redefines everything. Father, thank you so much uh, for your love. We know your word says, in this is love. Not that we have loved you, but that you have loved us. Lord, we're here today to worship. And Lord, we long so much to come to you with our hearts, with our lives, uh, Lord, uh, with an offering for you. But Lord, in reality, we know, Lord, as we come to worship this morning, um, you are the one that's giving. You give and you give and you give, and Lord, it is us who is needy to receive. And so, Lord, we come thanking you for who you are, thanking you, Lord, for your choice to love us, to give grace to us, to work on our behalf. Lord, we come proclaiming only the gospel, the good news. And the good news is not that we are enough or that we can bring something to you of merit or worth that we are deserving in any way or in the future could ever be good enough uh, for you, Lord. The good news is that you have loved us and that you came for us, Jesus, to live for our righteousness, to die for our sin, and to rise for our forgiveness and, and our new life and hope. And Lord, we know that you are alive today and God, because you're alive, there is hope for today and hope for tomorrow. Lord, we are coming today just to thank you and to worship you and God, to receive from you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and your living word. And we pray today, Lord, that you would work on our hearts and lives for our good, but most of all, Lord, for the glory of your name. Help us to know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I would ask that you get it open to the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 1, as we continue our series uh, called We Are. In the summer series uh, this year, uh, we are going through week after week and looking at our identity as the people of God. And we have been uh, doing this because really in a season of this continued uh, pandemic um, where things have just been disrupted to the extreme, we can say, uh, we have been stripped of a lot of the things that, to be honest, we might uh, look to as our normal sense of self. And this is a perfect season, as hard as it is, uh, to be sanctified, to be 
uh, just drawn even more closely to understanding who we are in God, who He is in us. And one of the things that I have desired to do that we are doing as a church is to, to use this season where so much else has been stripped from our identity to say, well, if, if everything else is taken away, that's okay. Who are we in our relationship with God? Who are we in our relationship with God? We've been answering that question, who am I? And in a world that competes so much uh, to try to define for us who we are or to shout at us and tell us, this is who you are, this is who are you to be, I really believe that week after week in this series, the opportunity that we have is to have a true narrative, a true gospel narrative uh, that, that helps to inform our hearts, our minds, and our lives of not just what the world is saying, but who does God say? It's like the song we just sang, I am who you say I am. And to be honest, uh, there is a daily battle in our own hearts. I wake up every single day on a search for a sense of self. Who am I? And I am praying that week after week in this series, we have opportunity uh, to really continue to, to give just gospel bedrock truth that will ground our hearts and our hopes in Him on a daily basis. So this morning, we continue. So far in the series, we've, we've looked at this question, who am I, and looked at the Bible and what we've said. And, and what we've seen is so far, if you have been tracking along, and at any point you could go back and, and uh, catch up if you've missed a week, but we've talked about how we are made in His image. This is a bedrock of our identity, understanding that we were created in the Imago Dei, in His image. We also talked about how this Ephesians 1 passage uses this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, over and over and over. And for those of us, and I pray this morning that you have come to a point where you have surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, but for those of us who have come into relationship with God by believing upon Christ, that totally redefines who we are. We now see ourselves as in Christ, and that relationship in relationship with Christ, us and Him, Him and us, secures us. We are not uncertain of our relationship with God. We are secure on the basis of our relationship with Christ. We've also looked at how God says that we are chosen, how God says that we are loved unconditionally, not conditionally, but we are loved. And last week we looked at on Father's Day how He says about us that we are adopted. Well, this morning, if you've got your Bibles open to Ephesians 1, we're going to be filling in a new blank this morning, and here it is. Today, we're going to be filling in, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. So our focus today in the passage that we're going to be studying together from Ephesians chapter 1 is we are redeemed. If you've got your Bible, we're going to start reading Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, here's our focus today, verse 7. In Him we have, say it with me, redemption through His blood. Would y'all read that phrase with me one more time at the start of verse 7? In Him we have redemption through His blood. He goes on and says, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things on heaven and things on earth. So today, we're going to be talking about that phrase at the start of verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. We are going to be talking about the theme of the day, we are redeemed. Uh, I don't believe this topic could be any more relevant uh, for myself and for you today. We all have to start, the gospel starting place every single time is calling you to recognize your own brokenness and need. The gospel message starts with our own understanding. We've got to come to terms with our, our own deep, deep brokenness and deep, deep need. The Bible describes this as sin. And the reality is sin has wrecked us all. And the reality is every single one of us, because of our sin, experience some form of what we could describe as addiction. Sin is addicting. Sin does put us in bondage. And the reality is we have all sinned. The Bible says it in Romans 3, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us, every single one of us, have created ungodly things that God has not desired and unhealthy, things that are not good for us, methods of handling life. Everybody. Um, most of us could describe in our own lives some uh, season or some journey of wrestling with some kind of hurt, some kind of uh, addiction, some kind of sin struggle, some kind of uh, problem, undesirable habit. We might describe it as a compulsive behavior or some pattern of sin that we don't enjoy walking in, whether it's pornography or whether it's a disordered eating behavior or whether it's a drug or alcohol or prescription uh, over uh, a misuse of prescriptions, um, whether it's some kind of abusive behaviors or manipulations or um, some kind of emotional codependency, whether it's issues of sexuality, issues of anxiety, issues of unforgiveness, issues of bitterness, issues of um, just relational dysfunction, issues of anger or procrastinations or issues of perfectionism or issues of lying or issues of gambling or issues of overworking or 
You name it, right? What is yours? <laughs> I mean, I know mine, but the reality is we have to come to terms with these issues, this deep brokenness in our life and this deep need. And the, and the interesting thing is, and I taught this when I taught the series Set Free several years ago when we were walking through the Beatitudes and talking through some of the basic principles of, of our ongoing ministry of Celebrate Recovery, which is based, a Bible-based program to help us experience freedom in Christ. But I talked about this directly when I said, for many of us, the things that we turn to as life solutions actually became life's problems. The things we had turned to at one time for solution actually became the problem of our life. And there are so many of us who feel out of control, who feel like we are suffering and dying and shriveling up physically, emotionally, mentally, and most importantly, spiritually. We are all broken. The question is how? What is, what is yours? And this is why I believe this message today is so critically important. Because our heart, my heart today, is to bring you to Jesus, to bring you to a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is a Redeemer, and to help you to know who He is and what He desires to do, and in fact, the new identity that He gives for all who come to Him. I want you to know the truth of the gospel for eternal salvation, but I also want you to know the truth of the gospel is for daily deliverance. Amen. The truth of the gospel is for eternal salvation, but the truth of the gospel is also for daily deliverance. I want you to know this morning, and we're going to get straight to the text, that Jesus came not only to offer forgiveness, we'll be talking about that in a future week, but he also came to offer freedom. Jesus came not only to offer forgiveness, but he came to offer freedom. And so this morning, I'm excited to be able to talk to you uh, about this truth, that in Christ, we are redeemed. I want you to go to the text with me, uh, and we're going to be taking notes this morning. It's going to be a lot. The sermon uh, outlines, we try to make them available after each Sunday online, but it is always more helpful for you to write along or take notes along on your phone or computer with me. So I, I love the Word of God, but my goal this morning is not for you just to sit and listen to me teach the Word of God and just listen and listen only, but rather to engage with me, to really seek to understand, to write notes so that you can really be a student of God's Word and ultimately a doer of God's Word and hopefully one day a disciple of others in God's Word. So this morning, I want to talk to you about this verse, verse 7, okay? So we said, at the start of verse 7, it says, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Now, this word redemption right here is very important. In the Greek, it's apolustrosis, apolutrosis. Now, what this word means, it's a technical term in the Greek. When Paul is writing to the, to the church of Ephesus, he uses this word for redemption, and there's several words that he could have used uh, to convey similar meaning, but this word has a particular meaning. And in fact, in the Greek, it is a term that was commonly used for money, that was paid to buy back and to set free prisoners of war. A term used for money, a particular kind of money, a money that is paid to buy back and to set free prisoners of war. 
uh, in the writings of uh, Josephus, which many regard as just one of the, the best historians of that time, we know that this same word was used for uh, describing the release of prisoners by the payment of a price. The payment of a price. And in fact, that's what I want you to write down. To understand this concept of redemption, you've got to understand what the word actually means. Because often when we think of redemption, a lot of times what we're thinking about is uh, a story where, you know, someone comes out of something bad. And that, that's true, but it's more technical than that in this particular scripture. Um, it's not just a feel-good story. It's, it's a story that involves some particular aspects. And here's what it involves. It involves the giving of freedom by the paying of a price. That's what it means. So to redeem the scriptural use here, he's saying in him we have redemption. It means there is a freedom by a particular price. Okay? Very, very important. It's an incredibly important and meaningful term because um, in Paul's day, one of the things that I want you guys to help you see is when, we, when, we're, when Paul's filling in the statement, we are redeemed, right? In him we have redemption. In his context, here, here's the reality. In Paul's historical context, uh, we know that human slavery was prevalent in Paul's day. In fact, some estimates would go up to, I mean, such a large percentage of, of humans, unfortunately. Slavery is one of the greatest evils that the world has known. But the reality was it was so prevalent in his day by percentage. Some estimate even up to perhaps 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire during his time. The reality is in his cultural context, he's talking to people who understand actual human slavery. In fact, in the church of Ephesus and, and other churches, we know that there were many, many people coming into relationship with Jesus who were, in fact, of a background of slavery. When they're using this term, they're associating it with a strong sense of, of people who are literally in chains, in absolute bondage, who had a human master over them. They had no choice but to serve in that, that condition, and many of whom longed, longed, longed for someone to come and to be able to redeem them out of the place that they were in. So this is Paul's cultural context as he writes this chapter in Ephesians chapter 1, but there's also another context that I believe is very important to help us understand this understanding that we are redeemed. And that is, from Paul's perspective, he's also pulling in an, a biblical context. He is pulling in uh, his understanding of what the Scripture has spoken about redemption uh, from the beginning. Now, really, the phrase here um, that I want you to write down is this phrase, kinsman, redeemer. Uh, in the Hebrew, this was the phrase, go all, go all, um, but the reality is, in English, what we, what we refer to it as the kinsman redeemer. There's two primary stories that I believe um, probably best illustrate this teaching of the kinsman redeemer in the Scripture. One is um, in Exodus, the passage that we know where the people of Israel were literally in bondage as slaves uh, to the Egyptians. 
in the start of the book of Exodus. And they were crying out for deliverance, and they ended up experiencing that deliverance as God himself intervened through Moses uh, to deliver them out of that bondage and to set them free out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of the land of Egypt, and to the uh, place of promise for them to have a new beginning. An incredible picture, probably in the Old Testament, the greatest picture of, of redemption that most of us think about. But there's another story that I want to focus on this morning uh, that I think will help us understand this idea of redemption. And that story comes from the book of Ruth. I don't know if you've ever heard of the book of Ruth, but if you haven't, I would encourage you to go and find it. It's in the Old Testament. It's a short little story, and it's a beautiful story. And this morning, I really want to focus on um, this understanding, this biblical context of redemption uh, as we see it in the book of Ruth. So, uh, as we go through the Scripture and we look at these uh, pattern of a kinsman redeemer, I want to put up a chart that I think will help you this morning. Now, you're going to get a little overwhelmed, perhaps, if you look at this chart all at once. But we're going to go through it as we talk about the fulfillment of all of this, this type of redemption that we see in the Old Testament. So, maybe you can write it down a little bit at a time. But there is... Uh, some dynamics to the story of redemptions that we see in Scripture that is very, very important for us to understand. Typically, when we see these stories of redemption, we see a problem. And you've got to ask the question, you know, why is a Redeemer needed? We also see a price. How is the redemption accomplished? We see a person. Who is the kinsman Redeemer? That's the question. We see a way. When does the Redeemer act? We see some results, which is what happens after the work of redemption. We see a response. What is the response of those who have been redeemed? And we also see a relationship. What is the new relationship with the Redeemer? Now, if you don't know the story um, of the book of Ruth, I want to give you Uh, some understanding of it, because we're going to build off of that. Because in Paul's mind, not only does he have this understanding of the cultural context of slavery that was existing, but he's also got this understanding from his background and his studies of the Old Testament of what the Bible speaks about uh, when he, and the Bible speaks about redemption. And the book of Ruth is an incredible story about a kinsman redeemer. In case you're wondering, a kinsman redeemer essentially is this. It's a male relative who according to the laws, and what I'm talking about, if you want to write it down, you can look at it later, Leviticus chapter 25, verses 47 to 55. So you've got a male relative who according to the the Pentateuch, the Old Testament law, had the privilege and or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who is in trouble, who is in danger, or who is in need. So you've got a male relative who, according to the laws, had the privilege of choosing to act on behalf of a relative who is in trouble, danger, or need. It's the idea of someone who is delivering, who is rescuing, who is redeeming property, and more importantly, people. So in the book of Ruth, um, the story begins with a lady named Naomi. All right? And Naomi um, is introduced to us at the beginning of the book of Ruth. 
And she's introduced to us in a great time of need because her husband, as well as both of her sons, including the son of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, right? So Ruth's husband was one of Naomi's sons. So Naomi's husband and both of her sons have died. And it leaves Naomi, as well as Ruth, both penniless, so think in absolute poverty, all of their income depended on having a husband, having sons. She's she's an absolute destitute situation economically. And as well as that, she has no male protector. And we see that the story begins in a really, really horrible place for Naomi. She decides that she's going to leave the land of Moab. She's going to journey back to Bethlehem. She tells Ruth to go her own way and to to do the best for herself. Ruth, uh, a famous line in the book, she goes, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay loyal to you. Um, She decides to go with Naomi and insists that she's going to make Naomi's God her God. She says, don't, you know, don't let me, don't make me leave you for where you go, I will go. Um, Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So the two of them in an absolute destitute situation end up in Bethlehem. And what Naomi does is she actually instructs Ruth to go and to glean the fields of Boaz. Now, Boaz is a wealthy relative of Naomi to whom uh, they, through a series of uh, just God-appointed circumstance, they end up going and appealing to Boaz as their Gael, their Goel, their kinsman, redeemer. Now, Ruth ends up obeying Naomi. She goes to Boaz. She ends up asking, begging for whether or not he would be willing and able to do it. And in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, we see such an amazing picture. An amazing picture of one Ruth who really is in bondage, in a destitute situation, going. She's unable to rescue herself, going and making a request of her kinsman redeemer that he might use who he is and what he is able to do, and the privileges that he is afforded for their protection, for their redemption, and ultimately to take her as his own wife. And Boaz, he ends up doing so. He takes Ruth as his wife, and together they bear a son. Um, And the son's name is Obed, and he ends up becoming the grandfather of David, who ends up uh, becoming a forefather of Jesus. It's just an incredible, it's an incredible story. Now, if you look at the questions, uh, again, if we put back up the chart, what you see is there is a narrative here, right? There's a narrative that this story follows. The problem, why is there a redeemer needed, right? Um, It's for just their own ability to continue on. It's for land. It's for a, a name. It's for just the ability to survive, the price. How is it that a redemption is accomplished? We know from chapter 4 of the book of Ruth that there is a price that Boaz has to pay in monetary terms, the price, and he has to pay it in full. And he has to go before the elders and the townsmen and show that, in fact, he 
He has paid the price in full sum. It's the only way that redemption can be accomplished for these women. If we look at that third question, the person, who is the kinsman redeemer? Well, the answer to that question is we know Boaz. And if you look at, there's always three uh, qualifications for a kinsman redeemer. You have to be a near relative. You have to have the means to bring about the redemption. And you have to, be, uh, you have to have the desire to actually accomplish the redemption. And in fact, Boaz is the right relative. He has the means. He's a man of wealth. And he has a desire to accomplish the redemption. If you look at that next question, uh, the way. When does the Redeemer act? And we know that in this case, the Redeemer acts in such a way that Ruth goes to him and makes the ask. And then after Boaz is willing to receive her ask, he goes and acts on her behalf to secure and ultimately to apply the redemption to her by taking her as his own wife. The next question, we see what are the results? What happens after the redemption? And we know that the results of the story is that these women are restored, not only to health, uh, but also to life. And their, their property was there. I mean, they, everything that Boaz had, he freely gave. The re- fullness of the act of redemption was a restoration of all things. The next question is the response. What was the response of those who redeemed? And the answer, of course, in the story is over and over and over. Uh, we see, especially there as we get to chapter 4, uh, this incredible contrast. From the beginning of story, they were empty. They were feeling hopeless. They were destitute. To the end of the story, there is just total joy, praise, blessing God, blessing Boaz. I mean, just complete reversal of, of everything. And then that last question, of course, what is their new relationship with the Redeemer? And the answer to that, of course, is that not only does Boaz redeem them monetarily and economically, uh, but also relationally, Boaz himself enters into new relationship with Ruth. So what we see here is that the biblical background, we are redeemed, is an understanding in the Bible's context that of this kinsman redeemer. And ultimately, we describe this as a foreshadowing, all right? Because we know in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, says these things are a shadow of the things that are to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, as we look at these foreshadowings in the Old Testament, we know that these things like the Passover and even like the story of Ruth, you've got to ask yourself, why is such a story given to us? And the answer is this, that ultimately there come a day that we understand who Jesus is and understand the fullness of what he has come to do. And ultimately, the story of the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi is a story that is meant for us to understand that the New Testament fulfillment of this story is Jesus. So right now, what I want to do is walk through how Jesus has come to redeem you. Because the reality is that ultimately, Jesus has come. He has come to bring redemption to your life. I want to walk through this same chart together this morning and 
I hope you'll write down the references that we're going to go through because we're going to go quick. The problem in our life, why is a Redeemer needed? I said it at the beginning of the message, and the Redeemer is needed because all of us have sinned. All of us are broken, and that sin in our life, that choice to turn away from God, actually becomes a sort of bondage. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, you may not feel it, although some of us, I really believe, do because we feel so out of control so often in these broken areas of our heart and lives where it literally feels like I don't know how to get free. I've been doing porn for how many years? I don't know how to get free of this. I have been sinning in this way and this relationship, or I have made these choices for so long. How is it that I could ever be free? Even some of us right now that feel very free in sin, actually Jesus describes the undertone, the things you don't see, is that sin is actually, even if you feel free in it, it is actually created bondage. Sin creates slavery. And the reality is the starting point in all of our kinsman redeemer stories is one of our destitution before God, our absolute helplessness, our bondage, our neediness before God. We have all sinned. And the reality is every single one of us, because of our choice to sin, have ended up in this place where sin has actually created bondage in our lives. And the reality is we're not just in bondage to sin, but Romans teaches us this, that we're also in bondage to death. And please pay attention to these boxes because this is going to be a consistent thing uh, throughout the message today to help you understand each element of, of what Christ has done in our redemption. So we, what is our need? We're in bondage to sin. Secondly, we're in bondage to death. And Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. One of the things that we have to understand about death is it was not in God's original design. And so many of us, you know, just this weekend I was talking to my family about death and the reality of death, and it is so hard to be thinking about the reality that there's coming death. But death was not a part of our, God's original design. Death is a product of the brokenness that happened in hearts, the brokenness that has happened in our world. And ultimately, we feel in bondage because we are in bondage to the reality is there is coming a day that we will die. Not only are we in bondage to death, but the Scripture describes that we're also in bondage to the law. We are in bondage to the law. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, the Scripture says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, the Bible describes that there is a bondage that comes under the law. I don't know about you, but my goodness, the law comes into our lives, and doesn't it just make us feel eaten up with conviction and guilt, and yet is powerless to do anything about the change that is needed in our hearts to actually get us to obey the law? The law comes in, and it shows us our brokenness, but leaves us more frustrated than when we first saw it, because it, the, while we become more aware of our brokenness, we end up feeling more helpless to actually live up to the good and holy standards that God originally designed for us. 
the law ends up putting us in bondage. And if you've ever tried to achieve salvation under the law or to achieve a constant right standing with God by your obedience under the law, you know the bondage that legalism is. The law creates, it exposes our brokenness, but what happens is it actually, it actually helps us to realize more and more our own bondage to sin. Not only are we in bondage to sin, to death, to the law, but the Scripture also describes in a way that we are in bondage to Satan. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, listen to this, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The reality is that the Bible describes us as actually going the way of Satan, and that is a description of just the way of disobedience and rebellion against God. And that in our sin and in our inability to get rid of sin on our own and our, 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 our leading toward death, uh, the reality is that that is, in a way, an enslavement to the very way of Satan that is in constant rebellion against God. And ultimately, we know that the Bible speaks uh, finally that not only are we in bondage to sin, uh, to death, uh, to the law, to Satan, but fifth, to the world. The ways of the world, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, describes that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. All of us are sucked into these cultural forces that just seem to overtake us. And the reality is that the, the world's allure on us is a type of bondage that sin creates in our hearts and in our lives. So you've got to go back to the chart and ask that question some of us, you know, you're not going to appreciate the work of redemption of Christ if you don't start in a place of understanding your need. And I'm trying to say to you today, do you see? I think many of us see. Many of us know. And I think this is one of the greatest challenges to identity is because we tend to identify ourselves here with the bondage that we have. Some of us, this may be news for you this morning, and I just got to tell you, if you don't believe you're in bondage, I want you to take heart what the Bible says about you because it is true. We are in bondage, in need of redemption. But I also want to say to you, the story doesn't stop there to others. Because those of you who already feel that bondage day in and day out and day in and day out, and you wake up every day primarily with your identity attached to the bondage that you're in, their story does not stop here. And that is why today I'm happy to be able to give you good news, because ultimately this message is not we are in bondage, but through Christ we are redeemed. We're getting there, okay? But it's important that we understand the start. Now, if we go to the next section here, I want, secondly, to talk about the price, because the Bible also speaks about not only our bondage, but what it would take to get us delivered out of bondage, both eternally, but also in a daily sense. What does it take for us uh, to be redeemed? And the Bible is also very clear about this. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we learn an essential element about redemption, that, and that is that blood is required. Hebrews 9, 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
So the first element is that for us to be delivered out of bondage, you know, Boaz went to Ruth and he paid. He used money. And it was the exchange of money that was required for that redemption. In the Old Testament, Passover, we know that it was the blood of a lamb, okay? So there's a closer picture in that story because blood was shed. And that's the picture I want you to think about. Blood is shed and has to be applied over those doors. It's the shedding of blood that is an essential ingredient of God's, God's design for their deliverance at that time. But for us, for our souls and our lives to be redeemed, it's not just any kind of blood. And in fact, that's the next piece. It, it cannot be the blood of animals. This is how our eternal redemption, daily redemption, differs than what they experienced in Exodus. Because Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, to deliver us from our, our bondage. So you've got to understand it's not the blood of animals. It is blood, but it's not the blood of animals. So the question is, well, what kind of blood is it? And the answer is, it's got to be a perfect, a spotless blood. Ultimately, it's got to be the blood of Christ, of one who would come. Like the John says, behold the Lamb of God. Not the Lamb, an animal lamb, but behold, there's got to come a perfect, spotless lamb. There's got to be one. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12 says that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come through the greater and more perfect tent, not made of hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. In other words, this is not animal blood here, but by means of his own blood. There's got to be the blood of one who is perfect, one who is like us but in perfection. And ultimately, we know the Bible describes there's got to be a Savior who would come and by His own blood, He says, to secure an eternal redemption. How is an eternal redemption possible? Let me tell you. How, what is the price of our redemption? There's got to be the blood, the blood of one who comes to save, the blood of God Himself. This is why the passage in Ephesians, if you go back to your text, some of you may have still be there. But if you look at the Bible there in Ephesians chapter 1, the start of verse uh, 7, our core focus for the day says, in him we have redemption, but notice what comes after it. What does he say? Through his blood. In other words, Paul is helping us to understand, in case you're wondering, in case you're wondering if redemption from sin is possible, in case you're wondering if redemption from death is possible, from the law is possible, Satan and the world is possible, uh, you got to know there is a price to be paid. The Old Testament teaches that, and he's tying in the price with the reality of redemption. The price is his blood. It's not animal blood. It's his blood, the, the Christ blood. So, if we go back to the chart, we see that the price is how is this redemption accomplished? It's accomplished through the blood of a perfect one who would give himself for us. Ultimately, we need a Savior. Now, the next question that we're going to ask is, who is it? Who is this person? See, Naomi, along with Ruth, longed for redemption. They knew. See, they knew. They knew their own situation. They also knew the price that would have to be paid, but they also had a question. Who could pay that price? Who, who was it? 
that could pay the price, and that ultimately led them to search for a kinsman redeemer, a Gaal, and ultimately led them to Boaz. And we know the, those attributes, right? Uh, because the kinsman redeemer had to be a near relative, one who had the means to bring about redemption, and also one who had the desire to bring about redemption. And for them, it was Boaz. But let me tell you, some of us who are wondering, that we know our bondage, our need. We, we, we understand the price. There needs to be the blood of a perfect one on my behalf. But the question is, who is it? And the good news of the Scripture is, His name is Jesus. He is your kinsman redeemer. He has come like Boaz, to be your kinsman redeemer. And not only that, but he is qualified. Let me tell you why. Let's go through those three things. Number one, he's related. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, we need one who is like us. We need one who is related. This is what the Bible teaches. There can be no redemption without that relatedness. The one who comes to redeem must be related. And since we had flesh and blood, the greatest mystery of all of all, it's just amazing that God took on flesh. He partook of the same so that through death, He could destroy our bondage. Ultimately, He is related. Secondly, second qualification that Jesus needs is, is He able? And the answer is, yes, He is able. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, the Scripture says, know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That's a Boaz type thing. But we have not been ransomed with that kind of thing. But what? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood of animals is not enough. Coins, gold is not enough. We need one who is like us, who would be able to save us, who would be perfect in every way, who could accomplish redemption for us, pay the right price. And in fact, one has come. His name is Jesus. And his blood has been given, and it is without blemish or spot. Thank you, God. Not only is he related, not only is he able, but third, we read here that he is willing. That's the third qualification of the Redeemer. And the Bible proclaims that he is willing John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, my life, he's talking about, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. In other words, we have a Savior, friends. You have a Savior, a wonderful Savior, who not only is related, who not only is able, but he is willing when he went to the cross, it wasn't like he got swept up in some moment that he couldn't control. No, he laid down his life for you. The blood that he shed for you was not taken primarily by the hands of other people, although it was. He gave it of his own choice. That's why he said, the Son of Man has not come 
to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? As a ransom. This is the whole picture. He says, I have come to give my life as a ransom. I'm choosing to give myself for your payment as a ransom for many. Jesus meets all of the qualifications, all three, all three of the qualifications. So you want to answer the question, who? The answer to the question is Jesus. You, you got to know your need. You got to understand the price, but you also got to go to the one who can pay the price. And there's only one, and his name is Jesus. The next part of our chart here is what is the way? When does the Redeemer act? How do we see the Bible speak about what it looks like to experience this redemption? There's really two parts. The first part is we know that God draws. And the second part we know is that we respond. You know, uh, Ruth, Ruth and Naomi were led to Bethlehem. And they were led to Boaz. And they were led to move uh, toward him. And there was a part that she had to do and there's a part that he had to do, right? It was all, the redemption was all him, but she did have to go. She did have to go and make the request. She had to receive from him. If she had not received, the redemption uh, would, would not be applied. And so the reality is, we know that God draws. John 6, Jesus says, Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up in the last day. God is yearning. He is yearning by his Spirit to redeem. But we also know that we must respond. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And he goes on to say in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The reality is redemption is possible through Christ. And it is applied both in an eternal sense but also in a daily sense as we come to Jesus and we cry out, oh, Jesus, I believe that you are my kinsman redeemer. I believe through your relatedness. I believe through your ability. I believe through your willingness that you can redeem, not only for all time, but even today in the midst of my struggle. How is redemption applied? How does the work of deliverance happen? It happens as we go to Jesus and we trust him. We yield to him. We look to him. We receive from him. That's how it happens. That next part of the story involves the results. What happens after redemption? What happens after redemption? The answer is, and this is the most beautiful answer, and probably the, the, the most key piece, I think, of learning to live in the identity of we are redeemed. What happens is freedom. Freedom. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The reality is many slaves who uh, were redeemed um, from slavery had a fear, perhaps, of going back into bondage. Perhaps they were redeemed, but they were redeemed by somebody who just wanted to put them back in bondage. And the reality is that Jesus says to us, I, I have come to redeem you, yes, but I have come to redeem you for freedom. It is for freedom that I have come to redeem. It is for freedom that I have set you free. I want you to be free. The result 
of Christ's redemption in our lives is, is freedom. Freedom in the same ways that earlier we saw that we are in bondage. Number one, freedom from sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, the Scripture says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In relationship with Jesus, friends, there is an opportunity not to choose sin. The Holy Spirit works in such a way that He frees us from bondage to sin. There is a choice. There is a freedom to choose God. There's a freedom from sin. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 36. Right after he describes how if we sin and we're a slave to sin, he also describes, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free indeed. So we have a freedom from sin. Secondly, we also have a freedom from death and the law. We have a freedom from death and the law. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, what we read is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You know how we talked about earlier uh, that the law ends up just enslaving us, right? And the reality is we feel enslaved by it because we can never do enough. We can never measure up. But the reality is the law condemns to death those who don't measure up. And Christ has now taken that condemnation for us. We're no longer under the law. Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming that curse for us. Going to the tree, the cross, and bearing the penalty for us. Now, there's no more bondage to law. Thank you, God. And also, there's no more bondage to death. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, proclaims, as Paul is dealing with the resurrection, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, Christ is alive, and Christ gives life eternal for all who look to Him. So, not only is there no curse and bondage to the law, but there's no fear of the consequence of the law, which is death. Yes, our bodies will die, but our spirits will live, and there is coming a day that He will restore us into new bodies, just like He had a new body, and we will live with Him bodily forever. Death, no more bondage. He goes on there in uh, verse 56 and says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. In other words, if you're living a life in bondage to sin, you got to change. <laughs> There's an opportunity to change. you gotta, you got to have a new frame of mind. Our primary identity is no longer one of bondage but freedom. Our primary attitude is no longer a victimized slave, but rather a, a one who is a grateful servant of Christ. We are so thankful, thanks be to God, who gives us freedom, gives us victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. We also experience freedom not only from sin and death and the law, but we also experience freedom from Satan. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the Scripture says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He has transferred us to 
the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, our old belonging was to the ways of the one who is the chief rebel against God, but Jesus has changed all of that. When you wake up every day, you no longer belong to the domain of one who is against God. You belong to the domain of Jesus, a Savior who has come to bring you back to God and will one day complete His work. we got to shift our thinking about who we are. We are redeemed. We are redeemed. We're no longer in bondage to sin, no longer in bondage to the law, no longer in fear of death, no longer in bondage to Satan. And last, we're no longer in bondage uh, to the world. We are free, not only from Satan, but we are free from the world. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he describes, By the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. No longer are you in bondage to have to say yes to everything the world throws at you. You're not. The world doesn't have the greatest power over you. Jesus does. Jesus does. Take heart, he says. I have overcome the world, and he is in you. Friends, we are no longer in bondage. No longer is that our primary identity. He has come to set us free. Praise God. Praise God. This last piece of our chart is um, twofold. One is the response, and the last is the relationship. See, if I don't know what brokenness and bondage you have been in, but I do know that God calls us to know that He has come to redeem. He's come to do that in a final sense by securing for us an eternal salvation and relationship with God, but he's also come in a, in a daily sense to secure for us the opportunity to experience his deliverance every day. And I pray that every day you would wake up and know that through Christ it is possible, it is reality, I am redeemed. But what does it look like to live in an identity of being redeemed? Here it is in these last two things. Number one is a response. What is the right response? The right response is living alive for God. Just living free, but using your freedom for God. Living as one who is free, just like with Ruth and Boaz. After she was freed, she, she loved Boaz. And she praised God. She, she lived a life of, of amazing gratitude, knowing that everything that she was experiencing in her freedom was a gift of another. And the reality is this is true for us. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. In other words, on a daily basis, living in a in a, an identity of being redeemed looks like this. We wake up every day and we, we think this. Consider this. I'm no longer I'm no longer in bondage to sin. I am alive. Jesus has freed me. I am redeemed in Jesus. Scripture goes on to teach, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God, who you have from God? You are not your own, for you're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In other words, do you understand that Jesus has redeemed you and he's redeemed you so that you might live alive and full of, in love uh, for God. 
Another passage, the last one I'll give you in this is Titus chapter 2. I love this passage. You've got a lot of references to think about all week long and for years to come perhaps as you think about living in identity of the redeemed. But in Titus chapter 2 verses 13 to 14, he says to us, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does it look like to live a life for the redeemed? Yes, we have hope. Yes, we have redemption. But that redemption has a purpose, and that purpose is that we might be free from lawlessness and growing in purity and likeness of our God, zealous for God, zealous for God, and living, living to make him known. The most beautiful part of this as we close this morning is this, is it's our relationship. What is the new relationship that we have with the Redeemer? One of the most beautiful things that the Scripture teaches us is that with Ruth, not only did she have one that would come to redeem her and Naomi and their situation, but one who would take them in in relationship with himself. Boaz became a husband to Ruth. And that picture of marriage is the most intimate of relational pictures that we have this picture of a new kind of relationship. It's not the picture of a, of a judge, you know, or a police officer or some random stranger coming and paying the price of redemption and then going on their way, but it's the picture of one who has come to redeem and then wants to take you in to the most intimate of relationships. And this is the picture that God gives us. The picture that God gives us is that we are the bride of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, we read, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In other words, I have brought you into a relationship with God. And don't you know now, don't you know that in this relationship you are like intimate with him? You are one with him relationally? Ephesians chapter 5 also speaks to this in verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The beautiful reality is that not only do we have this one-time moment of experience with a kinsman redeemer, and it's not just transactional, it's relational. It's not just positional, it's personal. God has come to bring us into a new relationship with him, and he is committed to us, to love us, and to care for us, and to serve us, and to work out the fullness of his redemption in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives until the day that we get to see him face to face. And in fact, that is what we see in Revelation chapter 19. In the end, there's going to be a rejoicing and an exulting, and we can give him all the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. The picture of the end of your life is one where you get to sit at a feast prepared to you by one who came for you, one who has paid the price, one who has redeemed you, one who loves you, one who has taken you as his own, and you will get to be with him forever. We are, say it with me, redeemed. Say it again. We are redeemed. Oh, oh, how I wish that we would learn to know, to enjoy, to live in light of this truth.